Jazz. All right, well, since I'm probably going to turn into a pumpkin pretty soon here, we should get this sucker underway. Are you ready for Jazz Bastard Podcast 273? As ready as I'll ever be. Ever for this particular podcast, you're right, because probably within a week or so, we'll have forgotten everything about it. Yeah, I'm Pat. I'm Mike. And uh, we're doing largely uh, a bunch of Mike selections with one I threw in there, and it's two piano-led albums um, from, I don't know, the fairly recent past. I guess one is 197 and one's 2000. It seems recent to us. And then a couple brand-new albums. Would you like to introduce our selections uh, sure. I don't have any, it's, it's been a little crazy. So you have to do personnel and dates and labels, but, uh, okay. the, the four things we're looking at are Ben Wendell's all one date and label edition records this year, 2023 and personnel. Okay. I mean, we can, let's save that for talking about it okay. because otherwise it's, it'd be hard for the listeners to remember. I would think anyway. Okay. Uh, Chucho Valdez, uh, live at the Village Vanguard. That's on Blue Note from 2000, and Chucho's a pianist of some renown. And then uh, Misha Mengelberg, No Idea. That's the 94 or 96? Well, what my sources said was 97, but you you may actually have the disc and have some more definitive. You're Almost certainly correct. Misha Mengelberg, trio date. And then finally, your uh, ringer, your selection, uh, Mehmet Ali Sandlikal's Turkish Hipster, Tales from Swing to Psychedelic. More albums need to have uh, colon titles. yeah. And that's on Dunya from this year, 2023. The Mengelberg, again, 97 on DIW, a pretty well-known Avent label uh, with a storied history. So I didn't know if you wanted to start with the piano albums uh, and then move on to the new stuff, or yeah, sure, as as you as you say, as you wish. Okay, so I, I'm thinking just arbitrarily, as we usually do, maybe go chronologically and look at Misha first. Okay. Um, No idea from 97. Misha is our only deceased musician. He lived from 1935 to 2017, a pianist, known to be associated with the European avant-garde. But in this case, he's working with Greg Cohen on bass and Joey Barron on drums. Yeah, Cohen and Barron are Zornistas. They appear frequently on the Sadik music label. Um, So, yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and Misha is someone who I've been interested in listening to for a while. He gets some uh, – the, the Penguins have some nice things to say about him. And I've had him – I've listened to him on some other things where he's um, a sideman. But he is, you know, he is a East – not ECM. He is a European avant-gardisto. So he's the kind of guy who appears on Han Benning's 
albums, you know, or Anthony Braxton. He's on the Charlie Parker Project. Hmm, okay. You know, Franz Kogelman, uh, The Blue Hour, La Heure Blue, Steve Lacey. He appears on that kind of stuff. So he's he's in on the deep end of the avant-gardistos. And so uh, the Penguins have a lot of love for him, and I've just always wanted to dive in and uh, hear something where he was the leader and uh, I don't know where I got I might have got this at the library or I might have got it in trade I can't remember but I got excited because I like the DIW label right and uh, and of course I like the uh, the accompaniment here with him so I thought it would be an interesting I, I was glad to find it and kind of get to hear it so I hope you liked it as well I guess the first thing to say about this is that even though we associate Misha with the avant-garde, this is a more traditional piano trio album and mostly features um, standards. Yeah. No idea. Sounds sort of like the chord changes are from a standard, but that's the one uh, original. Then he does Begin the Begin by Cole Porter. You Don't Know What Love Is by Ray and DePaul. House Party Starting by Herbie Nichols. Let's hear it for Herbie. I'm Getting Sentimental Over You. The Mooch by Duke Ellington. September Song. And Someone to Watch Over Me. So a couple of, I would think of more or less hardcore jazz tunes. And then mostly kind of almost ballad standards, right? Um, So what do you think of what he does with these kind of down-the-middle songs in a trio that I feel like is mostly playing fairly straight-ahead jazz, the drummer and the bass player. I mean, we know uh, Joey Barron can really get get ahead of steam going. Uh, you know, both these players are excellent, but I feel like mostly they're kind of playing it fairly straight. What, what does Misha get up to? Yeah, uh, so, yeah, this is definitely Misha's date. Um, the supporting cast is just that, the supporting cast. And it's really sort of a, a, a Misha-centered affair. I was, uh, I kind of like this because, you know, he has this avant-garde reputation. And so you would imagine that he would just pull all of these things apart completely like Taffy and turn them uh, inside out. Um, but instead, what we have are, I wouldn't say these are faithful or down-the-middle treatments of down-the-middle Great American Songbook tunes. He reminds me of in and out players like Cedar Walton. Hmm. Uh, you know, he's someone who, you know, y- you can hear the melody, you can actually hear the the tune, but there's just enough, there's just enough curve, there's just enough oddness to kind of make everything a little more compelling and kind of force you to kind of dig in and listen. So, like his version of the Mooch, I think, is fantastic. And he, that is not a song I would have guessed someone like Misha Mengelberg would cover. And then you're going to do this sort of relatively early Ellington, very recognizable Ellington, you know, tune. And um, it's it's 
you can recognize the tune here, but there's just enough oblique, just enough wonkiness to kind of take it a little off center. So it's still recognizable, but, you know, he puts his own stamp on it. And he does that with all of these songs. And I, I, I feel like that's just a really clever thing to do. Oddly to me, the, the tune that is maybe the closest to his, um, his own kind of slightly off kilter take would be, uh, Her- the Herbie Nichols tune. Herbie doesn't really do anything down. Uh, Herbie as a composer right, is yeah. <laughs> a, a down the middle guy. And I think I would love to hear, obviously we can't now, but I would have loved to heard a Misha Mengelberg album of a Herbie Nichols songs. That would have been really, really interesting. So anyway, I, I thought this was pretty cool. And, um, it's, it's a really good example of how someone can take the, the great American songbook and play tunes from it that are still recognizable as themselves and yet put enough of an individual stamp on them, take them just enough out to find interesting things that kind of force you to listen. And so I just, I found these things, I wouldn't quite call them earworms, but I found them attractive. Like when I, when I bore down and listened, I was like, Oh, that's, you know, that's an interesting take on that. And none of these things goes by really quickly. I mean, the shortest song here is his version of September song, which is like five minutes. You know, he takes some of these things out, begin to begin. It's like a nine minute spin, you know, he really takes these things out for a long trip. And I think there's enough of interest here in both hands as he plays to kind of merit that treatment. You know, if someone told me I was going to listen to a, a, you know, a jazz pianist in a trio setting play begin to begin for nine minutes, I would have thought, okay, this is going to be a chore, but none of this is a chore. It's, it's kind of, it's off kilter. I think that's the word that I sort of keep coming back to off kilter in an interesting way. Um, and a way that I find that my ears find compelling. I want to sort of keep listening. So I liked this. I, I hope you liked it. Yeah. And, and, you know, as opposed to deconstructionist or just out, it's more, yeah, we're going to start with this familiar thing and then be a little odd with it. Yeah. I have mixed feelings. I mean, it, it's, I think it's fair to call this a fairly cerebral record in that. Yes. There are moments where I get the methodology of, uh, especially when he's playing on his own, of Thelonious Monk and the Thelonious himself project, which I feel like, you know, various pianists have tried to get into that space. And it, I don't know why I'm so thrilled when Monk does it. And then, you know, interested, maybe not as riveted when some other pianists, you know, had that kind of thoughtful, uh, you know, each phrase is being laid down as as if it was being pondered rather than it, it's the rush of the rhythm and the chord changes pushing you along uh and he does a little bit of that not all the time but there are moments that that evoke a monk for me yeah some of the performances i guess for me maybe did run a little bit long and i think and i don't know how fair this is because i had to listen to this on the car as well as at work but i haven't had a chance to really crank it I do think that these performances suffer a little bit maybe from what I call kind of straight line syndrome and that it's, it's interesting. He begins interestingly, he ends interestingly, but he's kind of at a, a a similar point sonically, emotionally throughout. In other words, there is, you know, if Art Blakey said every solo had to like build to a climax and then have a wind down, you know, 
begin with the Starling, you know, it's none of that. There's no sense of shaping this performance to kind of tell a story or have a dramatic arc. It's more like, I'm going to start thinking about this song. And then seven minutes later, I'm done thinking about this song. But you don't get a sense, I I don't, at least of of distance traveled or kind of a a lot of dynamics or um, emotional journeys. It's it's more kind of, we're going to think about this for, you know, five to seven minutes and then we're going to try the next one. So I could have maybe used a little bit more. And I think it's partially too just because they're they're just they're going to play the head and it's very much Misha's setting the rules. This is not like an arrangement. You'll hear some trios that have a little introduction to a song and then play the song, maybe a little interlude, maybe this little riff that they've added to the well-known melody. You know, they're not doing that here. It's Misha sitting down with a couple of very accomplished guys and thinking through these tunes. It sounds to me fairly spontaneously. He's not trying to work these into quote-unquote performances. And that's, you know, there's good sides to that. It doesn't sound affected or, you know, uh, overly choreographed. But as I said, he's not a real excitable boy. He's the opposite of Warren Zevon. And so sometimes, like, I wish he'd sound a little bit more excited or a little bit more, I don't know, angry or whatever. Just a little more sense of, you know, his personality coming through these investigations. Uh, for me, I don't know about you, I by far the standout tracks were the jazz covers. So the Mooch, and then of course House Party Starting. Maybe that's just because I'm biased, because I had this huge immersion in Herbie Nichols' music maybe 24 years ago at this point, and I know that tune. I just think it's this playing it leads you into interesting byways. <laughs> it is not a harmonically, harmonically predictable tune. It's a little bit unusual melody. I really love it, but it is, as you say, it kind of lends itself to that methodology. And I feel like there and with the Mooch. He just seems a little more engaged and maybe more that his practice is fitting the materials. I don't know if you got that feeling or if they were more even for you. Maybe, maybe. Uh, that's. I mean, like I said, I, I thought that was a compelling – that was, the, for me, the Herbie Nichols maybe was the most compelling thing here because the sensibility felt like it was a little more meshed, you know? Right, right. So, yeah. I'm trying to think whether he – you know, I've got a couple European projects where Herbie Nichols is, you know, examined. And, you know, it's, it's interesting, but Cecil Taylor did this. There's something about early Ellington that has a weird appeal to the avant-garde. Hmm. And, you know, Nichols himself is this, this figure who those in the know in Europe have touched on, maybe done a better job of kind of, you know, bring him up from time. You know, the Clusone Trio does, you know. I'm going to butcher his name, but Bill Nilliger, however you say this, this cello player that famously played with Cecil Taylor, uh, he does an album of strings uh, playing Herbie Nichols' music. So, I mean, they've, you know, they've, there's been nods to this tradition. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was my favorite track. I mean, overall, it's a good album. You're not going to go wrong with these guys. Uh, the rhythm section is gold plated. They seem. 
almost sometimes like he's superimposing what he's doing over them. It's not quite music plus one, but you know, it's like they're playing yeah. along and, you know, I don't feel like this is Joey in a position to be edging along or commenting on or f- struggling with Misha. It's more like he's providing the, the along with Cohen, he's going to provide the, the, the uh, underpinnings and Misha's going to kind of muse over them. But I, I almost felt like he said, play like you're in a club date to them. And then he just, he gets out, but he's kind of, the tension is based on him getting out on this very well done, but kind of straight ahead foundation of the two players. You know, they're not trying to be out too. They're kind of, you know, doing excellent trio jazz club Thursday night kind of music. And then he's mishing it up a bit. So yeah, it's, <laughs> You know, little Misha like here, that. little Misha there. Mishing it up a bit. That's yeah. right. It's, you know you've made it if your name is an adjective. Um, any other thoughts on this one? Nope. Uh, I liked it, and um, I might have liked it a little better than you, I think. But, yeah, I thought it was good. It was an enjoyable – romp isn't the right word. No. Ponder. But, yeah, it was, it was enjoyable. Yeah. An enjoyable ponder. Yeah. Okay, so it's interesting because of the two pianists you picked. I'm not saying they're absolute polar opposites, but they're pretty different. I am not going to pronounce the backing group. Let if me get. Got, the, hang on, hang on one second. Yeah, Let you, me, you you're, you're going to make a meal of this, and I'm going to make a mess of it. So <laughs> you get rolling those R's, buddy. You can do it. <laughs> I'm going to make a meal of it. You're going to make a dog's breakfast of it. I'd make a mash of it for sure. Yeah. So it's not that big a group. Uh, sometimes when you get sometimes these Latin jazz approaches have lots and lots of people. And while there are, while there's a lot of percussion here, it's not that many folks. Um, so Chucho on um, acoustic piano, Francisco Rubio Pampin on bass, uh, playing string bass, acoustic bass, Raul Pineda Roque on drums, and then um, Roberto Vizcaino Guillot. Uh, he's playing the congas and other assorted percussion. And then uh, the list here says, not vocals, but vocalization <laughs> by Myra Caridad Valdez. Myra Caridad Valdez. And there's, uh, a, so, there's a couple tracks that feature her, but I mean, it's not like a, it's mostly a, a piano album with, with a couple tracks of vocals. It's not a, yeah. Just, just so the listener knows. I mean, that's, you know, and this apparently won a Grammy, you know, it was on a big label, Blue Note. And this guy has at least 15 to 20 fingers. I mean, he's, he's something else. Yeah, he's got a, he's got a lot of, he's a busy, he's a busy player. Um, the tune stack is mostly, uh, I want to say mostly, uh, one, two, three, four, five of the nine cuts are his. And then we have a couple of, we have a, we have a standard here, My Funny Valentine.
And then we have a couple of other uh, songs uh, by other folks, Arsenio Rodriguez, Eliseo Granet, and Enrique Ubieta. So, yeah, there's your there's your tune stack. Uh, I, I, you know, we continue to uh, make periodic forays into uh, Latin jazz, and it's a it's a it's a genre that neither one of us is I don't want to say uh, comfortable with, but neither one of us is deeply steeped in. Um, and so we always sort of run up against. It feels like we we often don't have as much to say as we might have to say about other things. We're even more ignorant of this kind of jazz than the rest. Is what he's trying to say. Yeah, yeah and yeah. You know, yeah, I think it makes sense to periodically, you know, grapple um, with 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 this genre. And I, when I got this, you know, I was excited because it was uh, first of all it's a live uh, date, and I always kind of I I often feel like this particular genre uh, benefits from live recordings. And then, you know, it's, it's blue note at the village Vanguard. So, you know, that it's going to sound good and, and, and going to be well engineered and so forth. Um, and it was uh, clearly, you know, a festive occasion with uh, the band in, in good form, I would say. So uh, anyway, uh, uh, Chucho mostly plays his own stuff. He will branch out and play other things, but his albums, uh, from what I've read, tend to feature a lot of his own compositions. So it was nice to have at least one song on here that uh, My Funny Valentine, where I could sort of go, oh, okay, I can kind of see what he's doing with that song. But would you guess that this extroverted dude would have picked that standard, right? I mean, it's... (laughs) The last one in the world, if you ask me, you know, play me a few tracks by this guy and say, what standard is he going to play? Wouldn't have picked this one because we think of it as this delicate, introspective tune. And, you know, yep. he, it's, that's not Chicho's way, right? He is, he's a pile driver of a man. Yeah. He really yeah. One. And, 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 um, yeah. So it is kind of surprising. And it's also sort of interesting to just compare and contrast his take on, you know, the tradition, if you will, or the great American songbook with Misha, you know, Misha is going to take it and put a kind of, you know, sideways spin on it and, um, Misha it up. Uh, Chucho is going to Chucho it up, which means kind of art to me, but, um, with a Latin feel basically. Right. I mean, so dude plays a lot of piano, but you know, it has this, it, 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 it's, it's, it's just got this kind of Latin flavor to it. Well, he's very rhythmic, right? I mean, it, yeah. he has got incredible finger speed, but a lot of it is pounding on ostinatos at yep. lightning fat speed rather than lightning runs of notes the yep. way you get from a Bud Powell, who he gives a tribute to, even though they're not much alike as musicians, nope. or Bernard Tatum, right? It's that, you know, kind of thing. Yeah.
I'm glad you mentioned that because that is kind of his. That is, it's it's uh, it's almost like he's drumming sometimes on the on the keys. It's this very insistent, uh, speed it up. Well, you said ostinatos. I mean, that's right. Yeah, he's like the opposite of a lot of players. I, I still found this pretty compelling, and I also uh, don't know how much I have to say about it, apart from the fact that I enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. I think I appreciated there not being a sort of huge band in this case, because mm, you could yeah. concentrate on the piano here, and you could really you know, hear him. The, um, the percussion elements augment what he does rather than drown it out. Um, it's not like he has to cut through a lot of static here. In a way, he's kind of... He's kind of the ringmaster, uh, you know, uh, working all of the rhythmic elements into a frenzy, not the other way around. Sometimes on bigger band Latin compositions, if you want to hear the piano, it's almost like you have to concentrate to hear it cut through all of the other stuff. And in this case, it's, it's like he's the one, he's the ringmaster here. He's the one who's kind right. of getting all of the percussion. Um, and it's not that much, but he's the one who's kind of, uh, energizing drive he's the he's the driving force here not not it's not the percussion that the piano has to cut through it's the piano kind of energizing all the other elements um and i guess it's worth saying he's he's an elder statesman by the time he records this he's not a kid anymore when this comes out i don't he's he's born 1941 i I believe he's still with us but, but yeah so he's Again, uh, slightly younger than Misha, but, but yeah, of that generation for sure. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, this is not someone proving he can make it. This is someone who's made it and is showing off, you know, kind of at the peak of his powers here. So yeah, um, I, I enjoyed this. Um, I'm really glad they did it live, uh, cause you can hear them kind of get the audience on their side and, and feed off the energy of the audience. This isn't some village vanguard date, you know. It's not. It's not a no diss here, right? This is not a diss, but it's not like a Fred Hirsch date, no. <laughs> you know. You know where Fred's going to be very contemplative and and he's going to play some amazing things, but everyone's going to kind of listen respectfully. You know, people are are bumping when they listen to this. This is this is up tempo stuff for the most part. So yeah, I liked it. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I still grapple with finding the right things to say about this particular uh, genre just because I just haven't steeped myself in enough of it. But um, I thought, okay, Blue Nut, Village Vanguard, guy at the peak of his powers, let's dive in. Sure. Yeah, and I, I liked it. Um, and like I said, I, I appreciate, I think I appreciated that it didn't have the panoply of horns and other things behind it so that I could really just right. listen to what Chucho, Chucho is doing here. It's like an augmented trio, basically. And- yeah, I, apparently early on he worked with Paquito de Rivera, and I think it's, yep. you know, there's that tradition, crudely speaking, of some of the people that came out of Cuba from that generation of, you know, these guys that are amazingly technically solid, they're extroverted, it's energy music, you're not going to turn to them for the kind of uh, Bill Evans introspection, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's a very uh, direct music that is, is kind of a very public a music rather than a, a private inward looking music. And yeah, he's, he's very good at it. Very powerful. You know, I was looking through an album's named live at the village Vanguard on my, on my server. So I've got one by Kristen McBride inside straight. Another one by Kristen McBride's trio, Chucho's album, 
an Elvin Jones album with that title, the Fred Hirsch album that he did we talked about recently with uh, Esperanza Spaldings, also called Live at the Village Vanguard. Of course, Coltrane had an album called that. Michael Petrucciani did one. Thad Jones and Mel Lewis did one. So, I mean, and of course, the Wenton Marcellus had this massive seven-disc set of his septet, maybe, octet, anyway, playing uh, the Village Vanguard. And, of course, that's just what I happen to have that's popping up under that name. You know, it's so what a storied uh, place and how many albums, in fact, have this name. It's not great for search engine optimization, but there you go. Uh, so, yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I it, The performances tend to run from five to ten minutes long. Uh, the album's a little over an hour. So there's a lot of it. Um some bits I found more compelling than others. In general, on this this whole show, it's been kind of like, in many cases, I feel like many of these performances could be two minutes shorter. You know, it's just not that you can't have a great long jazz performance, but it's just, it's, you know, you, the stars have to align. And I thought, you know, the the vocal numbers were good. They've got some growling in there. Uh, he's definitely got a sense of humor. You know, I noticed that opening track. We're just going to let the, the ambulance go by here. Oh, okay. Yeah, listeners, I, I live four blocks south of the fire station in town, so I get to hear them a lot. Um, he throws in a quote in this hyper-energetic, lengthy Latin workout from Blue and Green. I thought it was the most hilarious right. thing. It's like, and it, yes. Bill Evans might play this, but I'm not going to. Look out. Look so, I mean, there's a little bit of that going on. There's some quotation getting dropped in there, and I think... A way of putting it is it's kind of a humorous wink rather than he's trying to incorporate these materials to be solemn or to indicate his emotional depth or something. It, it's rather, you know, oh, what about this phrase, you know, which is kind of completely out of context in a Latin workout. So, yeah, I liked it. I, as with you, I, I struggle sometimes with Latin jazz. Knowing where I stand with it, I think that in general, I probably like music that gets quieter from time to time. Not that I don't mind bursts of energy, but maybe there's a little too much energy throughout the 60 minutes from my favorite taste. But yeah, this this is a certainly a good place to get to know him. And you know, he's almost 60 at this point, so he's he's been doing this a while. And I, you know, I'm not been following his career, but you know, he is an amazing technician, and there is just an amazing energy. It's not just that he plays fast, but the whole group is like a rocket taking off. So that you know can be good music to listen to if you're needing a little jolt. Um, any other thoughts about this one? A pretty impressive contrast with uh, with Misha, two players <laughs> that couldn't be much more different than these two guys. For sure. I mean, I think the one thing I'd say they have in common is I wouldn't classify either of these records as the great mind-meld Bill Evans tradition trio where the sum is greater than the parts and everybody's kind of... They're both, you know, very much about featuring the lead player, uh, which is not a yep. bad thing. It's just, but that's, that's the vibe. Well, do we want to go to the one where it's like all about him and multiple copies of him, or do we want to go to the one with the big band and it's all about these different eclectic settings? Where would you like to go next, Ben or Mehmet? Well, I'm going to go, I'm going to guess based on that, that you are less enamored of one of these than the other. So let's go for- Let's go for the big finish. Uh, So let's start with Ben. Okay.
listeners, I, w- I want to make clear, I'm not marrying any of these albums. Um, I, they just, you know, I like them all, but they're just I'm not worthy of a long-term relationship. I'm going to stick with my wife. This is the way it's got to be. Yeah, so Ben Wendell, this is an interesting one, right? It's all one, edition records from 2023. You want to talk a little bit about the background here? Oh, by the way, Ben, born 1976, so we've now moved up 35 years or so to a new generation, 35 to 40 years. What's the story yeah. of this one? So the story of this one is there are two stories. Story one is uh, Ben is multi-tracking himself throughout. And Ben plays uh, soprano and tenor and bassoon. Not oh, yeah. enough bassoon in jazz. Not enough bassoon in jazz. So that alone, to me, I'm like, yes, please. I just had a flash. There should be an album called Bassoon for the Bedroom. <laughs> oh, God. Just a thought. Just a thought. So that's one, that's, that's one move here. He's got himself multi-tracked on all on all of the songs and um when i when we got this as a review and i listened to it i seemed to remember thinking i really like this um i thought it was interesting we you know there there's a long tradition of people doing multi-tracking um bill evans conversations with myself i mean it's not it's not a new thing and 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 it's not sometimes i think people or you can hear people sort of complain about it as being uh, not authentic or somehow it's too techy. It's, it's too techy. You know, it's, it, it couldn't be reproduced live, but of course now you can reproduce this sort of thing live quite easily. So anyway, I don't have a, I don't have a, I don't have a dog in the fight that multi-tracking is bad. And I actually kind of like it when it's done well. And I think it's, it's done reasonably well here. So that's the one, that's one of the two appeals here. The other is it's an all-star guest lineup. Um, including, I don't think we've done any of his albums, but Tigran Hamajian on piano. We have done, there's two vocalists here. One is Jose James. We did one of his albums. And then the other is Cecile McLaurin Salvant. I think we've done all of her albums or all but one of them. So the new one isn't, I don't, I don't have the new one yet where she's making the little, uh, snaky tongue, but I assume that one's pretty good too. I believe I have that. Um, okay. Anyway, and then Terrence Blanchard on trumpet, Bill Frizzell on guitars. And if ever there was an ideal collaborator for this sort of thing, it's got to be Bill Frizzell. Um, and then uh, I'm going to give her name a try. Uh, on flute and alto flute, Elena Pinderhughes. There you go. That's your... That's your that's your band basically. Well, it's, uh, it's a six-track album, right? And in each one, he has one collaborator. He is multi-tracking his horns, and then whether it's a vocalist or trumpeter or whatever, there, there's one other voice or instrument or you know on that track. And so each musician guest is featured on one of the six, and it begins with well, we'll, we'll talk about it. Cecile singing, "I loves you, Porgy." And, um, yeah, I love that song, uh, as rendered here by Cecile. I think it's fantastic. It's kind of creepy. She's so needy. Oh, I think I it's mean, wonderful. The content of the song. I mean, she's a great performer. She does a great job with it, but just the lyrics and the whole scenario is a bit. Anyway, I for me. care. She sold me. I loved it. I mean, for those of you who don't know, I love you. Porgy is from the, um, musical Porgy and Bass, and it has some, how should we put it? It has some less than politically correct male-female relationships in it. And some of the songs reflect views or attitudes that 
in the Me Too era are no longer plausible. Um, and one of the, you know, first and foremost of those songs would be I Loves You Porgy, um, which Cecile just, she has sometimes been accused of being too arch for her own good. I don't think she's arch no, in that I, song. No, I think she delivers it. I mean, you know, she's she's a Broadway baby in some ways, you know, that somebody who definitely can move between the worlds of jazz and Broadway. And, you know, yeah, she nails it. I mean, you can imagine if she was playing this role on the stage, she would just knock it out of the friggin' park. Right. You know, she could. Oh yeah. I mean, I just, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And, um, so, you know, I was sold from that first cut. I just, I could listen to her all day and all night. And I thought that rendition of that particular song, was deeply compelling, especially because she she plays it straight. I also like the other vocal song, Jose James singing uh, tenderly. Yeah, yeah. I I thought he had a higher range than that, and you know he sounds. He goes fairly high, quite, but yeah, I mean he's they, they describe him as a baritone. Yeah, but but yeah, he I can, know, he can get up there I, though. Yeah. I just remember that album we reviewed before. I thought he was a tenor, and he sounded to me very much like a. I won't, you know, not quite Billy Eckstein, but, we're, you know, in the ballpark, you know, this sort of really lovely lower Well, of range. course, I'm thinking of um, Johnny Hartman, right? Isn't, isn't that right. one that he does with the Coltrane? Am I crazy? I, I think that's he right. That he may. Um, but it has that really kind of mahogany quality, you know, and um, both of the vocal numbers are, are just really lush and lavish and really beautifully rendered um the other songs are fine but those two really jumped out at me and i guess i i thought that ben wendell's uh multi-tracking sort of creating these Hmm. layers of sound really worked well for vocalists i i just thought he created a kind of lavish lush bed of sound in which to couch those voices i thought that was terribly successful um the other songs aren't bad they just they didn't they're not earworms for me in quite the way those two songs were but i liked i I did like this uh project and i liked the other uh songs but you know they just didn't stick with me um quite as much as those two and i just i just felt you know you know his his arrange, he's basically arranging himself, right? I mean, all of these multi-tracks, he's, he's creating a wind section that he's arranging. And, um, uh, I, you know, I think he does a lovely job, but the vocal numbers really sold it for me. I just thought, holy shit, that is, that is really good. So, um, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, I, I kind of want to hear him do a whole album of this with just vocalists. I think that would be fun. Mm. Um, or maybe it would be too much of, you know, maybe it would become saccharine. I don't know. Um, maybe it was just the right amount. But yeah, I kind of thought the Bill Frizzell number would be a little more. Um, that's the third cut, I think, throughout. I thought that would have been a little more. I don't know, something. And it's fine. I don't know. I, th- I maybe that was the wrong 
you know, selection to do. I, I you know, I think, yeah, I don't know. I expected a little more from that number. I didn't dislike it. I just kind of thought Bill Frizzell playing over this setting could be really cool. It could be really, you know, striking. And I thought it was, it was just okay. It was good. But yeah, not. Well, partially is that we're dealing with two classics from the Great American Songbook, and I was wrong, but I feel like Johnny Hartman is a spirit animal over tenderly, even though I at yeah. least don't have him singing it. But those, you know, I Loves You Porgy and Tenderly, of course, are very well-known songs and sturdy structures. And I assume the other four tunes are originals. And I don't know that they're as memorable, as successful as compositions. So I'd agree they get a little bit vaguer. I mean, for me, it's just, uh, and Ben has great hair. He does. I like him, but, but I just, I need some space, Ben. Okay, it's not you. What is you? It's so many of you. And I'm just feeling a little smothered, you know, I just, I just, yeah, I mean, I guess what I felt like was this album taught me in a way it's dramatically that I, I never thought of it before that space is important. You know, people say, well, it's Miles Davis's use of space or whatever. And it's like, it's Ben's non-use of space <laughs> that taught me, you know, so there is just, I, I feel like it's a little bit overwritten. There's just too much. There's there's very few moments where, and I think it's it's this nervousness that because he's playing these horn parts and there is no rhythm section, that he has to do it all, and he overdoes it a bit. I I believe in terms of the arrangements, there's just there needs to be moments when he's not playing three four horns at once, uh, for me for this to work a little better than it does. I think the vocal numbers are the strongest. I think both the vocal performances. I forgot to think. Siri wants to help. <laughs> oh, thank you, Siri. My bad. Yeah. And for the record, I, I have Johnny Hartman singing all uh, singing tenderly. It's on his album from 1956, All of Me. Okay. I mean, I just I just feel like that. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's a great job. I mean, he really it's it's exquisitely shaped. I mean, yep. another part of the story is that this is a COVID album, right? This is yeah. why does he do this? Because he can't be with other musicians. So he writes these arrangements and stacks his tracks because, you know, he can't give himself COVID. So that's okay. So I, I just felt like there was, there needed to be, he needed to trust that these performances, these gusts were strong enough that they did not need quite so much underpinning. And that might have been difficult because, you know, there is nothing. It's not like a bass line or somebody on a cymbal kind of laying things out. But I just I got kind of busy for me. And he's also a very expressive player who tends to vocalize a bit, bend notes, occasionally squeal. And I guess in that range, it's not that I don't like players who play that way, but I don't know that I want five of them at once. You know, that's when I kind of want Warren Marsh. <laughs> you know, it's just like, if you're just going to play a lot of lines, I don't want every one of them to have a little brecker in them. I want them to be a little bit calmer and just about the line rather than about twisting the line, because really a lot of what he's doing is playing arrangement. So there are times I'm like, okay, here we go again. Oh, he's screaming out. It's a neat idea, though, and I do think I agree with you. These two vocal performances are very striking. They're just very well done. They're they're top vocalists, and they they are not treating this as a um, throwaway by any stretch. I mean, they're definitely paying close attention and concentrating on what they're doing for these performances. And it's an interesting idea. I, you know, I like this. I just I I just felt like it kind of got into a rut for me. 
because uh, he's not, you know, it's not like he says, I'm the bassoon, I'm going to play the bass part. And I'm, you know, it, it's, it's these swelling beds of chords mostly. He does not, and I'm not saying that would have been a good idea, but he's not trying to like replicate a jazz group using saxes as all the voices. He's making these almost third streamy, you know, very chordal um, beds that they're performing over. And yeah, I, and I agree. I mean, I was thinking, is that Bill? You know, when I was listening to it without the personnel in front of me. Oh, yeah, it is. But it's not. Bill, again, he just needs the right environment to kind of either blend into where it's on his vibe and everybody's vibe in the same way and the vibe is a good vibe. Or I, I don't know how often he gets angular anymore or elbows out or fights to get his space in an arrangement. But yeah. when he's more recessive, it's it just, yeah, sometimes he can get feel a little buried there. And, you know, the flute and trumpet comp, contributions are fine. But again, you, you almost need something that cuts through the wall of sax. And it's, I think, a little harder for those horns to do it. And they're not, you know, he's he's not really spotlighting them as much as kind of blending them in, which is, you know, that's an aesthetic call. It's whatever your choice. But they're not as prominent sometimes in those waves of sound as the vocals are, and so it is a little easier to lose track of the line, and then it's kind of, where's the tension now? But yeah, a real interesting project. I have not, have you heard Ben elsewhere? Do you know about Ben? I don't think so. Let me just pull this up real quick. I don't think so. I'll tell you in two shakes if he's been on anything that we've uh, had exposure to. Uh, He has, actually. I think we got, uh, as a review sometime back, Frame, from 2012 that's a more traditional album it has guests on it as well uh, gerald clayton and tigran hamasian are also there but that seems to be his his band with bass drums and guitar um so we have that or we got that it came through. oh he was on tiny resistors by todd sycophus there you go and apparently Todd's got a new one out, so I've, I've downloaded but haven't listened to that yet. But uh, Tiny Resistors is one of my favorites from the first decade of this century on Cryptogramophone. I like, love that right yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he's been – and he's um, also with Christine Ale- Agu- Christina, that lady that sings, and Cher, that lady whose name I can pronounce, and some other – so he's done some backing of uh, pop performers. He's got a – in a group called Knee Body – which I just assume is kind of a fusion-y thing, but I don't know much uh, about. So, yeah, there it is. He's a knee body. Uh-huh. There you go. Okay. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if they are like Snarky Puppy or not like Snarky Puppy. I should look into them. Younger listeners, learn us. Give us some information on these groups. Uh, and he does have great hair. So, yeah, you know, he's done about six albums as a leader. And this one it was interesting to me, but that's what I think came back. And, again, I don't know whether – to be fairer to him if I've been listening on headphones or on the big boy stereo, uh, whether it would work a little better than in an environment where, you know, there's a little outside noise and you can't hear things as clearly and maybe it gets a little bit more congested. So I I don't want to, you know, that's something to keep in mind that I I may not have given him an adequate enough hearing. Uh, Anything else on this one? Yeah, just to flesh out, he's also a member of Dhaka Hip Hop Orchestra, okay. uh, Go Organic Orchestra, and, believe it or not, uh, something called Tron. 
not like the movie Tron, but uh, T-R-A-U-N, a a drummer-led outfit. He's been on a couple other things um, that we've heard. He was on Taylor Eichstee's Lucky to Be Me in 2006. Hmm. Um, I already mentioned Frame and where's it at? Yeah, we have a whole one. Okay, so yeah, I didn't realize he was on Todd Sikafus's album. That's pretty cool. Well, that's one, listeners. If you haven't gotten, I don't know. I've I've always like I was thinking, you know, if I gave a lecture on jazz, what would I do for the 21st century? And that's probably one of the top ones I'd pick as something a little different. It's not just sounding like Blue Note that I just thought worked really well. All right, well, uh, our last project is our most sprawling and ambitious Turkish hipster on the Dunya label from 2023. I, I was able to find a clip of this gentleman who invented a an instrument that can, that can play uh, quarter tones or between the, the, the Western scale, and he, he says his name, so I just used a clip of him saying his name. Mehmet Ali Sanlıkol. Because I just going to butcher it. This one is the most all over the place. I'm I'm don't want to run through all the uh, personnel because it, you know it's it's basically a big band with some other guests. Miguel Zinal is, is uh, one soloist who comes on. Annette Cohen, of course, we've heard of. Antonio Sanchez, the drummer, and then there's a lot of other fine musicians. I'm not trying to you know dismiss them. It's just they take 15 minutes to get through them. And this album is by far, I think, the most eclectic would you agree that it just goes different places it does i think that's uh i think that's fair when you call your album tales from swing to psychedelic you're telling people you know he's telling you what's what's inside the box um because it is from swing to psychedelic it's all over the place and he was born in 1974 so almost exactly the same age as ben what do you think of this one I like the hell out of this. This actually had some earworms for me. Um, so the Boston beat works. <laughs> you know, we complain sometimes or we have complained sometimes about the use of uh, hip hop and jazz. Uh, but here, as a way of introducing the members of the band, I know. It's great. It's corny, but it's fun. It's Yeah, yeah I was like. They do this freestyling, and then, you know, Anat takes a solo, and then Antonio takes a solo. It's pretty cool. My man Mehmet's the orchestrator. The truth like Sojourner came from Turkey to Boston, went from Chopin to Joe Turner. Rediscovered his roots through the long neck flute and Zerner. Now he about to ring off and push the whole game further. But for me, the big earworm here is Estarabim. That fucking song is in my head. And it's a eight-minute song, and uh, it's not a second too long for me. I love that song. Um, 
And I don't know how it became such an earworm. Like the first time I listened to it, I just thought, I love this tune. It's just, it's hooky. I mean, we never talk about, we don't talk often enough about, you know, jazz songs that have hooks, but that one has a hook. It's fantastic. I just love that song. I can't get enough of it. Sorry, I have a helicopter going over. In addition to living near the flight path for the airport, we live near the, the medevac flight path for the naval hospital. So. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. To the naval hospital. Anyway, I I just – Estar Abim is in my head, and every time it came on, I would drop what I was doing and just start rocking out to that song. I just I, – yeah, I, that, that worked for me. I thought this album was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the shit out of it. It's a weird set of players because uh, they're kind of all over the map, you know? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Very eclectic, yeah. Very eclectic set of players. Yeah, I just, I, I thought this was a lot of fun. We have, we, I, I hooked you up with, because I guess you, ha- we, we were given review copies of a couple other albums by uh, him. And uh, one of them just went out of, you know, our rotation, uh, my rotation here uh, just before this. But yeah, I, uh, I think it's, I think he's wonderful. What is the, what is the fucking horn that he plays? What is his, what is his, what is his horn? What is that that he's, it sounds like an oboe or something, but it's not, is it? He says he contributes to the album by singing as well as performing various Turkish instruments and then synthesizer keyboards, Fender wrote. So I, it, it I, I don't know. I, I don't know the name of it, but yeah, it is kind of like the Turkish cousin to the oboe kind of thing. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it's a, he also plays some percussion. He plays a barren bow. I mean, I, whatever he's playing sounds like a, an oboe. It sounds like an oboe. Yeah, this is a huge band, but, uh, for me, it's got a lot of, it's got a lot of rhythmic punch. It's, it's poppy in places. Um, and I feel like the, the reeds sort of carry it away. Um, I mean, there are, there, there's brass here, a bunch of trumpeters. We should say everyone's goddamn name. Antonio Sanchez on drums, Anat Cohen on clarinet, alto sax, Miguel Zanon. For God's sake, here goes another helicopter. Wow. Yep. Uh, alto sax, Miguel Zanon, Mark Zaleski, Aaron Kaufman Levine, Lehi Haruvi, tenor sax, Rick DeMuzio, Bill Jones, and Aaron Henry, Barry Sax, Melanie Howell Brooks, and Kathy Olson on trumpet. Mike Peepman, Jeff Clausen, Dan Rosenthal, Doug Olson, and Jerry Sabatini. Trombone, Chris Gagne, Gagne, Gagne. Uh, sorry, Chris. Uh, Bob Pilkington and Garo Saradarian. Sar- uh, uh, bass trombone, Angel Subero. Pianist, Utar Artun. Uh, guitarist, Phil Sargent. Bass, Fernando Huergo. And a couple of, uh, percussionists, Bertram Lehman and George. Lairness. So it's a it's a big goddamn band. Uh, but yeah, I just I I thought this was just loads and loads of fun. Anat is wonderful on this album, but I, I'm I'm growing to think that Anat is wonderful on everything. But yeah, for me the two standouts were the Boston Beat and Estarabim.
Sarah Beam is in my head. Like I'm just I'm there. Like it, that's that song is like stuck in my in my head. So yeah, I I I liked this a lot. I thought it was a huge amount of fun. Very different from the other things that that I've heard by him. So let me just pull that up real fast. You know, we this is I think the third thing that's come through the hopper uh, with him. Yeah, the rise up and an elegant ritual. Um, and I had just finished kind of listening to an elegant ritual when this, when this new one dropped for us. Um, and I remember liking an elegant ritual, but not being kind of blown away by it or anything. Um, and I thought the rise up was fine, but, uh, man, this, this is an earworm. I like this album a lot. It's like party jazz. I don't know. I don't know what else to say. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's kind of a loud party in your ears. I dug it. I see that he's appeared on another album with another Turkish player. I believe he's Turkish, a guitar player called Microtonal. That <laughs> might be interesting. That might be interesting to to listen to if he's really that into microtones and things like that. Um, although he's not a player on that, he's a composer. So who knows? Anyway, I like this a lot. I thought it was a load of fun. I'm assuming you liked it or no? Yep. Yeah, we talked. It's been a long time ago. I'd have to see what we called kind of party jazz. And Red Barrett was one of those groups. Yes. We also did the hypnotic brass ensemble. And I think Craig Handy, like secondhand Smith, whatever. So, I mean, we, we looked at um, some of these groups that, that are trying to appeal to the hiney as well as the intellect. And yep. this album certainly has moments like that. I mean, it is, it's, it's kind of it's not structured like a populist party album in that the tracks some of them are very lengthy and involved and then other ones are you know more uh kind of direct and 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 brief so there's some of them you know go on up to 10 minutes and you have to kind of follow where they're going they have segments and whatnot and others are kind of more direct but yeah, I thought this was my favorite of the four. It just it's it seemed I mean you can't resist an album called Turkey Shipster. It's just kind of kind of a cool title. It's kind of a you know not quite self mocking, but just you, know, you get the sense he's not taking himself too seriously. Yeah, I just think there's a lot of you know the rap section, as you said. I mean, it, 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 at least it's funny. And then when he starts introducing the group, it's like okay, this is kind of kind of funny as well as corny you know it's just what you know a mean clarinet you know whatever it's like yes that's 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 that's, that's awesome it seems self-aware i guess is a way of putting it the exotic the microtonality in a weird way a little reminiscent to me of ronald Shannon jackson and that he'd have these groups playing you know funk or almost rock-like songs with the jazz background but he would do them in harmonic ways where the horns are not playing in the same harmony, and so you had these weird tensions in the lines, which I always thought was pretty cool. And, you know, in, in another project that had some populist leanings as well as uh, some avant-garde ones. So, yeah, I think it's probably my favorite. I It's the hardest to get a, get a hold of, and it's the most eclectic. It, it's, you know, you can kind of, you know what's going on. I mean, Misha is very, very clear what his agenda is. To some degree, so is Chucho. And and Ben very much has got a fingerprint on that album to a degree that I, I found almost oppressive. It was too much of the same thing. This is kind of you know we're doing a little of this, a little of that. But overall, I just I think the energy's really gone on it. He's obviously a fact. I mean, he apparently invents musical instruments. He does all sorts of stuff. You know, he he arranges, he conducts, he performs, and 
you know, he's he's a mover and a shaker. He's a conceptualist. So an uh, interesting figure I, I was not familiar with. But this one kind of caught me, and I thought, well, okay, there's some some things to talk about here, and this one's jumping out. Whereas, you know, we get a lot of very well-crafted, good albums, you know, from the review services that you listen to once. It's like it, it doesn't necessarily grab you, even if it's right. very well done. And this one kind of did. So, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought it was, a, like I said, of the four, probably my favorite, the one that I think gave me the most to think about. Uh, but obviously they're all good. And, um, you know, that's typically the case with, with jazz releases. <laughs> Not a lot of, of crap coming out, because if you want to make crap, you can make a lot more money doing it in some other genre. Any final thoughts before we move on? Nope. That's good. Pop matters on your mind, my friend. No, I want to talk about uh, reading again for a variety of reasons. I've been diving into jazz biographies, and uh, I'm nearly finished with Herbie Hancock's uh, Possibilities, which is an interesting book. The most interesting thing about it, Herbie is just he's a lucky guy and everything kind of breaks his way. And I'm happy for him. And he's had a good career. There's two things that I thought were fascinating. I mean, in general, it's interesting. But um, one thing that's fascinating is he talks about, you know, after he left Miles, he kind of, you know, he started that uh, band Mwandishi, which is very out. Yeah. It was a Benny Maupin outfit oh, yeah. and it was very out. And he talked about in the in the in the book how they were doing like free group improv and they were just pushing and every night, da, 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 da. And then, and then it's interesting. Um, he talks about how he started to feel bad that they weren't being more successful. They weren't getting more attention. And he wanted to take the band in a more, um, commercial direction. And, uh, Benny Maupin in particular was pushed back against that. And Hancock's thing was, well, you know, every night when we play, something magical can happen, but sometimes, nothing happens you yeah. know and, and you know sometimes it's just a hot mess and and you know and, and i would like it and he's you know he's seeing the fusion guys are really connecting and and you know miles is going that way and and so he he's interested in in that stuff so then when he when he does go that direction you know so he, he leaves wandishi breaks wandishi up and 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 then starts to go in a more commercial direction and he starts to have success and, you know, what's ironic to me is, you know, he left Wandishi because he wanted to get more commercial success and wanted to be more noticed. And then when people start calling him a sellout, he says he talks about how this is his new artistic vision. And it's like, wait, you can't be it can't be both. Like, you can't say I'm leaving Wandishi. I'm shutting Wandishi down in order to be more commercial and then when people accuse you of being more commercial you can't say but this is my art now right like <laughs> yeah. it's like but, but rocket is art you know and it's like well, rocket is something um 
you know, but I don't know that, you know, I put Rocket has moved more units probably than anything else in the Herbie Hancock catalog, but I would take Juan Dishi over Rocket every day of the week, you know? Um, so that's a kind of funny moment in the text where he's like, people were bagging on me for my new artistic direction. And I was like, but you just said it wasn't an artistic direction 20, 15 pages ago. You know, you, you said <laughs> quite frankly, it was commercial and now you're mad. People are calling you out on your commercial turn. That was kind of fun. The other thing is he talks about the very special, uh, quintet. Oh, yeah. VSOP. Yep. Yeah. And this is fascinating because, um, you know, they wanted to put it together as a one-off to get together with Miles again. And, and Miles was like, I can't do it because I'd be your side man. So they got Freddie Hubbard in. And at first it went well. And then it started to not go well because Freddie Hubbard kind of thought he was the star. And he would show up late and shit. And he'd be like, you know, like they would be playing as a quartet. And he'd show up late. And he'd be like, okay, we can start now that I'm here. And they're like, motherfucker, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we we been started. And so they they booted him for Wynton Marsalis. It was very mm, young. Okay, that's how that happened. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. Wynton gets in. Herbie has some amazing stuff to say about Winton. I mean, the first thing he says is he's a great player. Like he's a motherfucker. He, you know, he's a great, great player. But he said, I kept noticing like when he would play with us four, he would solo. And after he would solo, he put little flourishes and little, little, you know, little, he'd do little cutesy bits at the ends of his solos as if to sort of, you know, put a cap on it. And he was like, that was the opposite of Miles aesthetic. And he said, you know, we all kind of wanted to say something, but, you know, what are you going to say? Like, you, you, you know, you don't want to harm the development of the kid. And he was thinking, you know, Miles would have found something. Miles always had a weird cryptic way of saying shit that got them to try new stuff. You know, and he, he sort of lamented in a, way, in a way that he didn't have that gift. And then he said, I think it was in Japan, they'd played a concert. And then after the concert someone told him that Winton was up, you know, in his room, like on the 24th or 25th floor with the window open. And they're like, what the fuck, you know, and, and, and that he was in distress. So, you know, he gets up to the room and I think someone else in the band got there with him. And when they get there, Winton's sort of sitting on the ledge, kind of looking down. And he says, he says in this sort of, it's an amazing moment. Winton must be 20, 21 at this point. And he says, I'll never have what you guys have. I don't have what you guys have. Meaning, like, he's got all the technical facility in the world, but they have some lived experience. They have something that makes their playing better than what he has. And he kind of admits it, you know? Oh, interesting, because I that he never did again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Yeah, exactly. You know, Herbie's like, that's the one time where he, you know, kind of, because then he became like, you know, he, he, he and Stanley Crouch got a hold of him and he became shitting on everything Miles did after the second quintet, basically, and shitting on fusion and shitting on everything after like 1969. But there was that one moment where he was like, he recognized 
that those four guys playing together just had this kind of telepathic lived experience that deepened their playing. And even though technically he might have been the best trumpeter on the planet, he didn't have that thing that they had and he knew it like he knew it. Um, and I was like, that is a fascinating story to hear about Quentin Marsalis. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'm just curious about what he would say about that now, because obviously he has a lot more lived experience and he's got a lot more, you know, miles on the odometer. And I wonder if he would, I wonder if Winton today would think differently about Winton before. And of course, you know, Herbie has nothing nice to say about when Winton walked on stage at Montreux or wherever it was with Miles. He, he's like, that was just the ultimate disrespect. So he doesn't really shit on him. He just, he basically says, not cool it was a very, very not cool thing that he did. But that story about him in Japan is like a 19 or 20 year old going, I'll never have what you guys have. Like, I don't have what you guys have. That was fascinating to me. I thought that was a pretty interesting story. Yeah, and it, I mean, it encapsulates Winton, which is, yeah, of course you don't, because they live when they lived, and you're living when you live, so you have to have your own shit. You know, you don't, it's just funny. It's, yeah, it's like you, you'll never be the heroic times of being the second great quintet, but you, yeah. Um, the book is also interesting for him. The other thing that Herbie Hancock is, he's a tech head, and he always has been, and, um, the, the biography, the autobiography charts his engagement with, like, tech, early like he's a very early adopter of new stuff and he had like a couple of engineers working with him to create stuff that no one else had you know so he's he was he's it's i didn't realize what a tech head he was from a very early period it turns out i'd be looking for it i by the way the uh, burton book arrived today oh good so i'm looking forward to that i i don't want it i don't want it back so no that's when cool. you're done that's cool yeah, I'll, I'll put it in a little book box or something. Yeah, I've, I've, the Mundashi, I, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but it, it's an amazing group. It is very spacey. It's awesome on vinyl. <laughs> and you can find those pretty easily. Uh, but yeah, you have to be in the right mind space to get into it. And then, yeah, when you go to, uh, the Headhunters group, it, it's, you know, he's clearly, we're going to simplify here. We're going to get some riffs. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I enjoy that music too. Uh, but it's he wants, very he wants airplay. He wants fans, you know. He wants to put on the parachute pants. If you're done with Herbie, I don't actually, I, I've got tons of pop because in my trip through Wisconsin, I ended up scooping up a bunch of stuff, but I don't think I can talk about it because when I was going to Italy, I watched a film heading back uh, about Little Richard. Have you seen Little Richard, I Am Everything? No. Well, uh, <laughs> that's what it's about. I don't think he would allow me to talk about anybody else. So, um, yeah, it's a documentary. It, 
it's weird. I mean, it, it reminds you of his seismic importance, right? And also reminds you that, you know, he didn't die in 1960, but he kept going and he'd disappear and he'd reappear and he'd have a comeback and then he'd turn Christian again. And then he'd, you know, it, it was a it, an odd career after his first burst. It is, as the title might indicate, pushing very, very hard for his pivotal role in rock and roll. And to some degree, score settling about, you know, how his influence has been downplayed. I, he's a fascinating figure, incredibly charismatic, hilarious in interviews. It's a little hard. I mean, they kind of want to make him a gay hero. Problem being that he renounced his gayness multiple times when he'd have his periodic religious conversions. So that's a little hard to pull off. And then, you know, he's this amazing vocalist who wrote some of the foundational songs, but part of it is whenever they go back to him performing later on, it tends to be those same songs, right? And he wrote 10, 12, 15 of, of the greatest rock and roll songs of all time in a pretty short burst. And then he uh, remained an amazing vocalist who could do gospel, could do rock, you know, but he was not somebody who kept producing new music that move the music along, right? I, I mean, I've got his greatest hits, and they are amazing, right? I mean, it's, you know, they talk, of course, the story about Tutti Fruity, which was originally rather explicitly about anal sex. You know, they had to clean that up pretty pretty thoroughly. And, you know, it it, it was it was a great reminder of him. It's great. The clips from him on talk shows is, is fantastic. The frame is maybe a little bit special pleading. And, you know, there's moments where it's like, and yet, look, look, Paul McCartney used to just imitate him, and it's absolutely true. I mean, Paul McCartney imitates, you know, he has a little Richard thing that he does. But it's like, but then Paul McCartney also wrote Yesterdays. And he wrote, you know, I mean, he had, that was the thing, that that second generation of rockers very rapidly learned that you have to have more than one string to your bow. And, you know, that first generation are amazing, but they all tended to be really good at one or two things and just kind of do them. So Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, you know, I mean, the exceptions are like Elvis, who just was a great singer, never conceptualist, and absolutely was, you know, using African-American music as his template. There's no way around it. I mean, later he kind of went into music that was not as tied to that tradition. But, you know, he was just an amazing fucking singer who kept making amazing fucking vocal albums, but he didn't have, you know, he wasn't like a songwriter or anything, and he wasn't an originator. And then, I don't know, maybe, you know, Roy Orbison, even there, you know, he's somebody that was just an amazing vocalist. He'd do these amazing, you know, operatic songs, but, you know, it's, and that's kind of what he did. Uh, he didn't, you know, it wasn't like he went through phase two, phase three, phase four kind of thing. And then you got another generation that kind of, became more flexible, whether, you know, in, in white performers are black. And so there's this feeling kind of a special pleading, maybe, you know, both reminding me that, yeah, he's more important than I remembered. I should think more about Little Richard and then pushing it so far by the end of it. It's like, but yeah, maybe not that important, but yes, he was important. You know, <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, yeah, you guys are really making your point. And again, I cannot stress enough. I mean, it's, it's not a brilliant documentary. I mean, it, it doesn't quite have the knack of, of, of giving you a firm timeline the whole time or of a feeling like at the end of it that you've kept learning more. But it's, it's solidly done. And there are just, you know, his clips are just, he is an ama- he's a force of nature and he's hilarious. 
just very, very funny. You know, he was a figure who felt like he was in the wilderness for decades and was not given his propers, not given his royalties, even more important. And nothing, you know, that's, that is a crime. So, yeah, mixed feelings about it, but definitely we're seeing out of respect to the man who's everything. I'm not going to talk about anything more tonight, but uh, w- worth a look, especially if you're on a plane and it's free. And that concludes Jazz Bastard Podcast 273. As always, you can reach me at pat at jazzbastard.com. You can reach Mike at mike at jazzbastard.com. You can drop me a line on Facebook or look me up on All About Jazz. All About Jazz streams the podcast, as does Spotify and Stitcher and Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. And of course, you can download the podcast at www.jazzbastard.com. Tune in next time as we do an episode of All Bangers. We're going to be looking at some big releases from 2023, including work by John Coltrane and Eric Dolphy, Brad Meldow, Artemis, and Brandy Younger. Because once you've done an all-Dorothy Ashby episode, you are by law required to talk about Randy Young. Until next time, take care.